All right, so 1 Corinthians 10. Now, we're going to read, we're going to start back at verse 23, and we are going to read, <clears throat> excuse me, down through verse 30. We're not going to get all the way to verse 30. We're not even going to get close to verse 30. But I want to read to you in context what this is so that we can get our heads in gear uh, because you're kind of responsible for this study tonight. So I'm going to let you get your head going in the right direction. It says this, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat for both the sake of the man who told you and for conscience sake, the other man's conscience, I mean, not yours, for why should my freedom be judged by another man's conscience. If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, then why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. All right, so that's kind of the flow of thought here. And we were talking two weeks ago, last week we talked in, in Psalm 66 about uh, the righteous and the unrighteous and those who attain joy and those who God brings uh, judgment against. Two weeks ago, we were talking in 1 Corinthians 10 about everything is permissible. Um, and it kind of, just to review, just to remember what we talked about, Paul repeats that everything is permissible twice here, but he also said it twice back in chapter 6, if you remember. Uh, the, the Corinthians had this sense of what they wanted to do. It's kind of like that, um, that child who um, is doing something and their sibling says, you need to stop that. And they turn around to the, them and say, well, dad said I could. You know, it's kind of like that, well, I have the right to it. I don't care if it's bothering you. I'm allowed to, and you're not going to get me in trouble, and you're not going to stop me from doing it because I have the right to, right? Has anybody ever had that experience with children ever in your life? Like you've taken a long trip somewhere, and the argument's going in the back seat, and you're just like, oh, man, I'm going to stop this car and, or drive off a cliff or something, you know, because I can't take it. The idea is the childishness that we all get from this focus on what is allowable. The word permissible there is really the word lawful. What are we talking about when we talk about lawful? What are we referring to? It's the hook in with the Old Testament law and the dietary restrictions, and it was against the law to eat certain things like pork, shellfish, things like that. It was, there was things you weren't allowed to eat, but now God says you can eat all of it. So it, it no longer is against the law. Everything's permissible. And when Paul was in Corinth pastoring them, he probably told them, this is the way it goes now. Now, I know the, you know, the, the, the law and the prophets say this, but God has since said this. And so therefore, we have everything is lawful for you to eat. Everything is free for you to eat. Okay, And since they're talking about meat offered to idols, they're saying, but Paul, you said we were allowed to eat whatever we wanted to. See, you told us you gave us permission. And he says, everything is permissible. But then he qualifies it. And he says, basically, here's what he's saying. Whether something is good or bad is not ultimately the deciding factor of whether you should or should not do it. That's a big deal. Whether something is permissible, lawful, whether something is morally acceptable or not, is not the deciding factor in whether or not you should pursue it. That's a powerful truth. He says, 
instead of just looking at whether there, is there anything wrong with it? Did any, is there any law in the Bible that says I can't do that? You go further than that. Certainly, if there's something in the Word of God that tells you it's sinful, you should remove that from your life, right? I mean, that's, that's a plain thing. But that doesn't mean that just because something's good to do means that you should do it. And we're going to look at that as we go down this, this list here. A lot of people have this trap inside of them. And what they believe is that anything that's good to do, I should do. And they wind up overloaded, overspent, burnt out. They wind up running themselves ragged because there is no discernment beyond, is it a good thing to do? And can I do it? Then I must do it. But Paul goes back past that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, he's not really making new rules. He's saying, we're not going to live by the rules. We're going to live by something else. They're appealing to the rules as the foundation for their behavior. See, it's, it's allowable within the rules. We have the right to it, God said, kind of like that toddler in the back seat. And Paul, what he's going after is saying, you have to stop looking at whether or not it's in or out of bounds in terms of the rules because that's not the final determination. We are motivated in the New Testament beyond rules. We are motivated by love. And if you, if you rewind in your mind back to 1 Corinthians 6, and it was the discussion about the law, taking people before the law, and you had the right to something, and you said, I'm going to force you because I have the, the legal upper hand. I'm going to force you to do this. I'm going to take you to the law. And Paul said, why wouldn't you rather be wronged receive the wrong for the sake of love, which is a whole different economy. And so it's not really, let me change the rules. It's, we do know that there are boundaries and there are rules that matter to they help us see what, you know, what's on and off target. But Paul says, that's not what we live by. We live by a whole different center in our soul, which is the center of the Holy Spirit inside of us, guiding us, empowering us with love in concern for our, our fellow man. So I think that's the difference there. And that's what Paul's trying to say. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial and not everything is constructive. And we looked at those words. Beneficial, of advantage, useful, helpful, and constructive, something that builds up instead of tearing down. And you start to get a picture of what he's talking about. If I choose something that I'm allowed to have, but the ultimate effect of it is that it is useless, it is empty, it has no benefit to anyone, spiritually is what he's talking about, right? And it is destructive spiritually, it's a behavior that winds up destructive spiritually, then that's not something I want to have a part of, uh, as a part of my life. This is a great guide rail for us because it helps you evaluate between the good and the good, between what's okay and what's okay. How do I make choices here? Well, Paul says the same thing Jesus says. Well, you look at the fruit. You look at what comes out of it. Is it building people up or tearing people down? Is it building you up? It's very ambiguous here about who is receiving the benefit and who is receiving the constructiveness. So Paul says whether it's building you up and, and useful to you or whether it's building others up or useful to them, it has to have a spiritual productivity to it in order for me to spend and invest my time and energy in it. Otherwise, even though it's okay to do, I don't really want anything to do with it. So, for example, there are a lot of things in our lives that aren't immoral to do, but you shouldn't do them. Can you think of anything that when you apply the evaluation of is it constructive and is it useful, is it beneficial, that it would be allowable, but I don't really want to have it as a part of my life? Okay. 
Yeah, you can't, you don't open up the Word of God and say, here's a law against smoking cigarettes. They didn't even have tobacco products back in that day, right? But the question is, is it beneficial? You know, and so you go, okay, well, that's something that I'm not going to be a part of. What else? And as a church, we face that all the time with our needs team. Like, are, is our financial aid to somebody actually helping them? Or are we really hurting them spiritually? Are we taking away faith from their life? Are we enabling them to live in a, in a um, kind of irresponsible way? You know what I mean? And that's a difficult decision to make, but I would, we would always much rather come not with policies and principles, like, okay, what are the, what are the policies of the, the needs team? These are the policies of us giving money away. It may make you feel real safe, but it's not our call. Our call is to come from a place of spirit-ledness and look at a situation and know people and say, what are we going to do that builds them up and that is beneficial to them? And if my help, what was, like Bob said, what is good destroys them, I want no part of that. We can make mistakes. I mean, we're not God. We don't see that clearly, but that's our goal. That's what we're shooting for. We're trying to evaluate, is this beneficial or is this um, not beneficial? All right? So we kind of looked at that, and we kind of went through that stuff, and then um, came down to, you know, if your uh, ultimate uh, way of deciding in life is, is it right or wrong, you're going to be really, really messed up. So Paul goes on, and, and what we talk about tonight is the next statement, which is, nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. All right, so Paul says, what you decide to do, what you allow to do, what you pursue with, your, with the resources God has given you, your energy, your time, your, your money, your focus, all of that stuff, your passion, what you pursue should be stuff that is constructive and beneficial, and the implication, the inference is spiritually beneficial. If it's financially beneficial to you, Paul's not saying, well, as long as it has some benefit. You know what I mean? I mean, you can argue a lot of things that are financially beneficial that aren't really beneficial. They're very short-term benefits. Do you know what I'm saying? So Paul's saying spiritually beneficial, something that has a long-term, eternal kind of benefit to it. Then he goes to this, and he says, here's another way you can look at situations. And he says, nobody should seek his own good but the good of others. So let me, let me explore this with you just a little bit. Because again, as human beings, we like to be very simplistic. We read a verse like that, and man, can we take that to the nth degree in the wrong way? Does doing good for others necessarily mean that I need to be self-destructive? Is that the only way I can do good? Or is that the natural outcome of seeking good for others is that I don't receive any good and my life is actually impaired or, or hurt in some way? What do you think? No, right? I mean, you're thinking about it and that's a good thing because people, when they read, nobody should seek his own good, kind of get this martyr mentality. And they go to this end where... I don't want to have anything good for me. I just want good for other people. And that's not what Paul's saying here. What Paul is saying here is you have to pursue giving and, and seeking the good for other people. That is a characteristic of New Testament Christianity. Now, what happens when I do that? What happens to me when I do that, right? Okay? I'm sacrificing. If you were to look at the early church, you read through the book of Acts, and we did a study in Acts a couple years ago, would you say that it was a normal characteristic of believers to sacrifice, 
to give away something that they could have used for themselves to benefit someone else, to sacrifice. By the way, I don't know how much sacrifice happens in our church today. I'm, I'm our church, but I'm saying the church. You know what I mean? We generally don't even understand sacrifice. The, the idea, the concept of sacrifice is giving away something that I need because someone else needs it. How, how many times have we seen that happen in our lives? The digging deep. You know what I mean? That's, that's sacrifice. Okay. And so we get into this thing and we say, we should be seeking the good of others. We should be pursuing their good and not mine. It doesn't mean that I don't receive good. What, what generally happens to me when I live seeking the good of others? How? There's, there's blessing, certainly from God. The person blesses me in return, right? And spiritually, I am, as I live by the Spirit, as I live in love, as I give, as the Father gave the Son and as the Son gave His life for me, as I give... I'm in the Spirit, and I begin to experience the fruit of the Spirit, right? Which is what I'm after anyway. Like, if I, if I go to talk to people, whenever I talk to people and say, what do you want in life? Number one thing people think that they want in life, to be happy. They want to be happy. We're all very good Americans that we, we you know, the pursuit of happiness is like right up, we have the right to the pursuit of happiness, right? The Bible says that the way you get it is by living in the Spirit. It produces joy in you when you live in the Spirit. And if you will allow the Spirit to rule you, you will be seeking the good of others. That's what the Spirit does in you, right? When He, when he controls you, He uses you as a channel of His love to other people. And the natural byproduct of that for me is joy and peace and self-control and gentleness, right? Which makes a lot of sense. If I'm not in it for me, if I'm not pursuing my good, then I can be gentle with other people because it's good for them for me to be gentle with them. And generally, generally when I'm not gentle with other people, it's because I'm frustrated because I didn't get what I thought I deserved or I wanted. And that frustration pours out, right? It's a, it's a way I get turned back in on myself. And so my experience when I actually seek the good of others is good for me. It's actually the best for me. But it just, I can't seek my own good in order to gain my own good, right? Remember when Jesus said, if you uh, uh, save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, you'll find it. Remember that? that? That paradox that he said? That's the idea here. The only way to genuinely become alive is to die. Which is, what? Humanly speaking, we can't get that. But that's what Jesus is inviting, that's what Paul is saying here. Nobody should seek his own good but the good of others. He's saying as you go around in, in your life and you interact and this issue of meat, should I eat meat off to idols, the, dis, the determining factor should not be, do I have the right to do it? The determining factor should be, what is for the good of those around me? Now, if you are somebody who lives around a bunch of judgmental Christians and they're always like, well, you shouldn't do that and you shouldn't do that and whatever... The, what might be for their good is for you to stand up and say, well, I'm going to do it anyway. Not because it makes you feel like, oh, I got my back up, but because they need to understand. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not always this simplistic, let's just do the safe thing. And I think we'll see that as we keep going here.
And so it does seem like the New Testament church considered it normal to sacrifice in love for the good of others. Is it normal for us to sacrifice for the good of others? Do I give up anything for the good of others? When was the last time? What was it that I gave up for someone else's good? Is that the norm or is that the exception? Now, there are places in our life where we do kind of fall into that most of the time. I would say parenting is one of those roles where it just, you just kind of get it. Like, I'm going to give up what's mine for the sake of my children. That can get overdone, and that can become even idolatry and, and, and twisted. But in general, we kind of get that. A little bit less so in marriage. I find that marriage tends to be a little bit more self-centered. You know, if you're not getting what you think you should get from your partner, you become bitter. You become like, what's going on here? You're not asking, am I giving what I need to give? You're asking, am I getting what I want to get from this relationship? But the Bible's not talking about just those close relationships. The Bible's talking about the world. When was the last time you sacrificed for a coworker or a neighbor or a stranger? The heart of Jesus in you is one that drives you to seek the good of others. Even if it costs you something you'd rather not give away. Now, I say what I really firmly believe and try to always bring up when I say this. I am not in any way saying that God will call you to sacrifice your spiritual well-being for anyone at any time. Your spiritual well-being is never to be up for grabs. It's supposed to come out of a spiritual wellness that you are ready and eager to give to other people. If it doesn't come out of that, if it depletes that spiritual, if, it, if your faith is weaker and, and more distant, if, it's, if you're more in the mode of trusting in yourself and what you can do and controlling, then you are not walking in the spirit in that sacrifice. You are walking in your flesh. And that will not produce anything good because it's not of God, it's of you. So we're not talking about, when I talk about sacrifice here, I'm not saying, so basically you're a martyr and you shrivel up and you die on the side of the road. There's a, there's a balance to this. I am responsible as a pastor, as a dad, as a husband, as a child of God. I am responsible to make sure that my spiritual life is, is healthy and alive. Because everything that I do, every person that I serve depends on that for me to be spiritually well. And if I'm not, I am of no good to you. And so I've said this many times to the elders and, and other people. If there comes a point in time where me being a pastor and trying to serve cuts off or, or truncates my spiritual life, I've got to ask a deep question, which is, is it time for me to be done with this ministry because it's getting in the way of my primary calling, which is being a child of God? If it doesn't come out of that relationship, it doesn't flow out of that relationship, then it's worthless. You know, when Jesus says in, in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing, he means that. I'm the vine and you're the branch. And if you get cut off from me, if you're not, life's not flowing from me into you, there's no fruit going to be produced. Nothing's going to get produced from that. And so seeking my own good or seeking the good of others, it's a question, it's a challenge that Paul is putting in front of the Corinthians. And he's putting it in front of them because they want to eat what they want to eat. And the reason they want to eat that meat is because it's better tasting and it's cheaper. You understand the selfish draw of that, right? They go to the market, they see better meat for less money, 
And they're like, I want to have that. And am I allowed? Is there anything wrong with it? Nope, nothing wrong with it. Good, I'm going to take it. And Paul is saying, you need to consider the bigger implications of your decision to eat meat offered to idols. Because you live in a town filled with idolatry, and as you bear witness to people who are living in idolatry, you want to make sure that you are not tripping them up from coming to faith in Christ over the fact that you would like to taste this taste when you have dinner. Does that make sense? I mean, think about that. So you had a meal, and you really enjoyed the taste of that meat. Great. But because you did, somebody wound up never being able to come to Christ. Is that worth it? Of course not. But we didn't think of it like that, because all we were focused on is us. We, We were blinded to the impact of us because we were just concerned about our rights. And that's what Paul's addressing when he talks about Everybody should seek his, not his own good, but the good of others. All right, does that make sense? All right, so back, back side of the page. Now Paul's going to give them instruction on how to build themselves up in others and to do what is good for the, for the good of others by talking about this idea of when to eat or not eat meat sold in the market. Okay, so he says, eat anything sold in the market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord and everything in it. So, He's telling them to eat everything sold in the market, including what? The meat sacrificed idol, which is what they want to eat. Okay? So, again, this is an interesting response to them saying, well, we're allowed to. And Paul says, yes, go ahead and eat that meat without raising questions of conscience. Okay? And he's going to keep going with his descriptions of how to, like, decide on this. But what you're going to see is that There isn't a problem with eating that meat in terms of my relationship with God. That's the first thing he says. Eat it without raising questions of conscience, okay? There is a saying out there in Christianity, it's a saying in life too, but it's the better safe than sorry, right? It's the, when I was in high school, you know, growing up in in a lot of very staunch places of faith, um, they would talk about like this. They would say, okay, so if you're, if you're up on top of a cliff, right, how close do you want to get to the edge of that cliff, right? You don't want to get right up on the edge. You want to stay as far away as possible from that, the edge of that cliff. And the, and the implication of that was, how close do you want to get to danger morally? You don't want to get really close to it. You want to stay far away from it. And so they use that to apply to everything. It's something like this. If there's any question to it, just stay clear of it. You'll be safe. Better safe than sorry, right? And And... While there may be a a nugget of wisdom in there somewhere, the problem is that as a creed, it doesn't work because it sets up as an idol safety. Nobody can say, I did anything wrong. And that's not our goal. Our goal is to reach the world for the cause of Christ. And so our goal is to evidence love. Our goal is to show through sacrifice, through giving, through caring, that God loves them because we love them. And so staying far, far away from things hasn't always worked to make people feel loved, has it? We had, in May, we talked about the whole kind of like uh, homosexual gay marriage debate that's going on in America today. I would venture to say that the church over the past 50 years has done a really good job of distancing ourselves from any like taint of sin in homosexuality. We've done really good at that, right? Now, how loved does that community feel? Which is, we missed the point, didn't we? I'm not saying we had to say, oh, it's good, everything's good, because we, we looked at the Word of God, and it's clearly not good. But at the same time, we can't run and, and hide somewhere else just to make sure we're untouched by sin. 
As a matter of fact, when I look at Jesus' example, he's the one tromping into places where everybody goes, well, why would you do that? They're going to make you dirty. He's eating with those sinners and those drunkards. How could he do that? What's wrong with you? So if I'm going to follow Jesus, I'm going to wind up in places where people are like, no, you're, you're getting contaminated by them. Then I'm going to be like, okay, now I'm probably on the right track. Not because I'm living in a sinful way in any way, shape, or form, but because I'm interacting with people that other people are kind of like nervous about. Okay, now we're, now we're following our Savior, right? Now we're evidencing love that goes beyond comfort. And so that's the, that's the question that gets up here. He says, go to eat in the market anything without raising questions of conscience. If avoiding sin or any chance of causing someone to stumble or be offended is Paul's ideal, then what he says here is directly against that. He says, go into the market, eat whatever's there without raising questions of conscience. And I see people like this a lot. People who are earnest and sincere in their faith, who want to do the right thing, and they're worried they might do the wrong thing. Do you know people I'm talking about? I mean, it's not because they're not really trying to live right. They're really trying to live right. I have a couple of children like this. They're really trying to live right, but they're trying to live right paralyzes them. Because all they do is live in questions of conscience. Well, it might be wrong, and somebody might think it's wrong, and I don't know what might happen to it. And The problem with that is, I'm not living and walking by faith in God's leading in my life. I'm living and walking by my ability to back away from any potential danger. Do you see the difference? What I, and what I've encouraged my kids to do, and what I've learned to do, is you step forward into that and you let God lead you through it. You trust that God has a passion to show you what you need to know. That's the walk of faith. It's, it's not a safe walk. If it was, it would be a lot more comfortable. It's not a very safe walk, but it's a walk of assurance. It's a walk of peace because I know that God is with me. I know that God wants me to know His will and that God knows who I am so He can get through to me. And so as I walk, I walk under the direction of the Spirit. So Paul says, you go into the market, eat whatever you want, essentially, without sitting there and deliberating over questions of conscience. I wonder if this is eat off to idols, and I wonder who's going to see me buy this. And he says, don't worry about that. When you go into the market, eat whatever's there. Does that make sense? He's saying there is not a new law where meat off to idols, you've got to not eat because you might offend somebody. He's saying go in and eat everything sold in the market. When I begin to live... In, these, in the paralysis of conscience, where I'm like, well, what if, what if this happens? And what if that happens? And what, if I want to begin to live in that, my focus shifts. What does my focus really become on when I live in the, what would, what would this mean if somebody saw me do this? It really becomes on yourself, doesn't it? That's not the focus that Paul is calling them to, but that's the focus it becomes. I heard this the other day, like, when I was in my, I don't know if this is, I don't know who said this, so I can't tell you, but it was insightful. When I was in my 20s, I was worried what everybody was saying, what everybody thought about me. When I was in my 40s, I didn't care what anybody thought about me. When I was in my 60s, I realized nobody was thinking about me. You know, like the idea that we just have this propensity in life to think it's all about us. It's all about me, it's all about me, it's all about me. If you are a follower of Christ, it isn't about you. Who's it about? It's about Him, right? 
Isn't that where we end in this chapter? Didn't I get down to verse 31? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all so that people will think you're a good person, so that you don't offend anybody, so everybody likes you. Is that what it says? No. Do it all for the glory of God. So if God's glory comes through your failure, are you okay with that? If God's glory comes through your humiliation, you all right with that? That's, that's what the call is here. If God's glory comes through you giving away all the blessings God has to you, if God's glory comes through you being a millionaire, it, it's not about that at all. It's about are people seeing Him? Is He be, being seen as great and glorified in honor? Is He the one who's getting the credit? And so if you're here on Sunday, a lot of times what we'll say is, what we want you to walk away from here today is thinking, man, isn't God awesome? If you walk away thinking, you know, that, that, that preacher, he had some good things to say. That, that worship team, man, they were really good. Man, that church is really friendly. And that's kind of it. If that's what you walk away with, we've missed the mark. Because I want you to think all that stuff, but I want you to think of it in relation to it pointing you to, so God is good. Because God did that through those people. God is the mover of this church. And if God is not here, then we have no reason to be here. If God does not move on Sunday mornings when we get together, if we don't need God here for us to meet and worship in His name, then we better close the doors because we have no point of being here. We're just going through empty motions. Uh, one time I read, uh, uh, Francis Chan was talking about how the Spirit of God is in the church of God, but how often is it are we absolutely in desperate need of the Spirit to show up or everything will fail? Like, do we plan services like that? Where it, it's like we're all in on the Spirit being here because this is stuff, we're asking stuff to happen that only the Spirit can do. And if the Spirit doesn't show up, it's all going to fail. Or are we pretty good at just doing services that, you know, Spirit, if you'd like to jump in, you can. But if you don't, no big deal. Probably nobody will notice. I mean, that's convicting because this is about Him. Do all to the glory of God. And so when I go to the market, it's not about me. It's not about my rights. It's not about me proving to you that my argument's valid and I can prove to you that I have the right to do this. It's about, this is to the glory of God, which is where he starts with by saying, for the earth is the Lord's and all that's in it. What's he, what's he saying by that? The earth is the Lord's and all that's in it. That everything's God's because He's the Creator. So the meat that I'm going to eat, I give thanks to God for providing it for me. I give thanks to God for providing me with the whereabouts, the, the ability, the, the, the wealth or whatever to purchase food for me and my family. It is the reason that we as believers make a habit of before food, bowing our heads and saying thank you. I don't know when the last time you thought through that was, but think through that. Why do we do that? Because it is a spot in our life where we have decided to recognize that we are dependent on the providence of God. We are going to give glory to God whether we eat or drink. It is just a human thing for us to eat and drink. It's, there's almost no spiritual thing to it at all. You know, like last Thursday I ate, you know, tuna fish. You know, oh, that changed my life spiritually. No, it didn't. It was just tuna fish. I just had a sandwich. I just, I had a headache. I needed some food. I ate it, right? It doesn't have any spiritual, but because when I look at it as the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, and I say, God, you made this, and you brought it, you provided it for me. 
That's your goodness on display right in front of me. Thank you for this. And we recognize that on purpose. It's not an empty ritual. It's not an empty motion. It's a spot where we are deliberate about our faith and about giving glory to God for even the small things in life. And so this food is not about me. You know, as our kids were growing up, it was, you know, they come to the table and like, what are we having tonight? When you have four kids, it's like there's not anything that you can serve that everybody likes. Somebody's going to complain when they come to the table, right? You guys ever experienced that? Those of you who make food, right? Like, somebody doesn't like it tonight, right? The rule in our house was you do not come to a table where someone has worked and put together food and you have food to eat and complain. You don't. It's completely inappropriate because God has provided this for you. God has provided the person who, pre- who prepared it for you. All you did was show up, right? So be thankful. Even if you don't like it, it's not really about you. This is a, this is a, a submission to God's provision for you. And I'll tell you, if you can learn that in simple things like the food that I eat, Maybe it's a baby step that takes me towards other things in life that I don't really like, like my job or my neighbor, you know what I mean, or my financial situation, because those are bigger things. So I have to learn, I have to like deliberately take these steps and pattern it into my life that I'm going to give thanks to God because the earth is the Lord's and all that's in it, and He receives glory for what He provided for me, whether it's my taste or not. I'm going to give Him thanks for it. And in a life of thankfulness, now my life stops being about, well, do I like this or not like this? Do I like that person or not like that person? It becomes about, do I like God? Is He great? Is He glorious? Is He marvelous? Is He wonderful? Yes, He is. And so here's just another evidence of it. And here's another evidence of it. And so I do begin to give glory to God in all of those things. The earth is Lord. It's a quote from Psalm I wrote down on your notes, Psalm 24 verse 1. And it's the basis for Paul's instruction. When you go to the market and you go to shop, eat anything that's there because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. All right. Then he shifts gears and we won't get through this because we're almost out of time. But he shifts gears and he says, okay, so now you went to the market and you bought meat. Buy whatever you want. It's all before the Lord. And it's just between you and God. And because you know there's nothing to this stuff, have, have at it. You have the freedom to do that. But When some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go. So now what are we talking about? When some unbeliever invites you to a meal, what's Paul addressing with them when he talks about an unbeliever and going over an unbeliever's house? Okay, temptation for the believer to fall maybe, okay? What's at stake going to an unbeliever's house? Their... Eternal destiny. When you back up to nobody should seek his own good, but seek the good of others. When I go to an unbeliever's house, and I clearly what he's saying is, you know this is someone who has not trusted Christ. My concern is for their spiritual well-being, not for my rights in the rule book. And so I'm going to this unbeliever's house, and Paul's going to tell me about how to react in this unbeliever's house. Because I should have in view their well-being. The issue, again, is meat. They're going to put meat in front of me. Now, when that meat shows up in front of me, the likelihood is that it's meat that was offered to idols. So, should I eat it or not? What should I do? Their soul is on the line, and I'm now not worried about whether I have the right to do it. I'm worried about 
whether or not I'm having a constructive effect, a beneficial effect on their life, or a destructive effect, an empty effect on their life. I'm worried about that. I'm thinking about that. That's my concern. That drives my choices. How would I know? Well, Paul says this. If they put something in front of you, eat everything that's set before you without raising questions of conscience. Second time, he said, without raising questions of conscience. Okay, so here's what he says. If they put something in front of you, receive it with gratitude, give glory to God, and eat it. Okay, without raising questions of conscience. It means it's not your concern whether it was offered to idols or not. If they put it in front of you, if they've given it to you, you receive it, and your testimony is one of gratitude, generosity, graciousness, you receive it. And it's, he says, without raising questions of conscience. Now, this is a challenging thing. Why would I, what would drive me when someone has invited me over their house and puts meat in front of me, what would drive me to say, now, was this offered to idols or not? Because that's what he's saying. Without raising questions of conscience, without saying to them, now, what's the deal with this meat? Because i got to know if I can eat it or not. Why would I do that? Yeah. And I do it all under the guise of, I'm really serious about my faith. Right? We, we're like experts at this cloak of like, I'm just doing this because I just believe it's right. But what I'm really doing it for is I want you to see how good of a person I am, how much better I am than you, right? That, I mean, I think that, that's what he's saying there is when you sit down to eat, the only reason for you to bring up a question of conscience that hasn't been brought up to you is because you want them to know how awesome you are and whose glory are you seeking and whose glory are you called to seek. So you just said, no, no, don't, don't see my Savior and His work in my life. Look, look at me. Look at how strong I am. Look how determined I am. Look how like, careful I am with what I eat. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. There's tons of ways we do this. God gives us an opportunity to be testimonies and lights and witnesses of His love and His grace, and we make it about us. We say, look at me. I want you to see. I want you to see what I think or what I feel or who I am. I want you to see me. I want you to think well of me. And that desperation, some of times it grows out of wounds in our lives where people who God put in our lives to affirm those things didn't do that. And so we constantly run around the rest of our lives looking for someone to say it to us, right? I'm thinking of parents, you know. God specifically puts parents in their lives of their children so that as those children are forming, as they're growing up into adulthood, the, the children hear messages of affirmation, uh, especially, I would say, and I, I don't remember where I had this conversation, but I had this conversation this week where it, it seems as though God has designed men to be the only people who can speak affirmation of manhood into young men. And God gives dads to say to their sons, you're a man. That's what a man does. And, and place them that way as men. And so we have these words that we're called to give. Unfortunately, not everybody gives them. And so people live with those wounds. They live with those insecurities in them. When they grow into adults, if you still have to tell your kids how, how nice they are, how, how, how much you love them and everything, for them to be okay when they're grown, something's off, something's wrong, right? That it's during their formative years where God gives you that voice. But it's supposed to transfer as they get to adults. I'm still waiting for it to happen in our family. But transfer when they get to be adults so that their okayness comes from a security in their relationship with God. And I don't have to be the, the reflection of that for them for them to be okay. 
Like that's the healthy process is that they have an independent adult relationship with God where they're assured of His love and concern for them so that they can walk forward in that. And it's not about me, me, me. And so sometimes the reason people are all about me, look at me, look at me, is because they believe that if you would look at them and see them, then they would feel like they're something. The loving thing is not to affirm, affirm, affirm somebody like that. Why? Because you're keeping them stuck. Isn't it? Because have you ever been in, in front of one of those bottomless pits of affirmation where you're just like, no matter how much you say, it, it's like you, the next day, it's like you never said anything. You know what I mean? That's an evidence of a wound that only God can heal. You can't heal. And you start to feel like somebody's like wringing your last drop out of you, right? What's that from? That's from, I'm trying to fill up a hole that only God can fill up in them. And there's a wound there, and I, my heart breaks for that wound. But I can't play along. If I play along, I'm just keeping them stuck. What I have to do is say, listen, you, you have a big question that you keep asking through all of this need for affirmation. There's only one place you're going to find that answer, and it's not me. Right? Now, now what I'm doing is I'm entering into an uncomfortable conversation that I don't really like and I don't really want to have because I don't know how it's going to turn out. I don't know what you're going to think about me. I don't know what you're going to say to me. I don't know if you'll ever talk to me again, but I'm pointing you for your benefit to God, to the answer. This is the love we're called to, isn't it? The real deal love. I would feel better to just say, oh, you're fine, you're wonderful, good, that's great, and then just not pick up the phone when you call, right? That's a, that's a much more comfortable way to deal with it if I'm after my good. But if I'm after your good, it drives you to have difficult conversations, stuff you don't want to say, stuff that may not be received well. There are people that I've had conversations with that I walked in sweating, trembling. I, I don't really want to have this conversation, but I know I have to have it because you need us to have this conversation because I care enough about you to have it. And that's the stuff we're called to. That's the stuff that stretches and grows us over time. And so here we see this example of meat and a dinner table. And Paul says, don't raise questions of conscience. Don't live paralyzed and don't live to highlight the fact that you have such a sensitive and clean conscience that you have to ask these kinds of questions. Eat whatever's offered to you. There are some who would say, well, then how would I know if I don't think about it, if I don't obsess about it, how would I know if there's a problem? What would be your answer to that question? If we're, if we're in theory um, following the Word of God here and it's, it's it Paul's advice to these believers and they sit down and they're like, well, they didn't say anything. I don't know if this is going to be a problem or not. The implication behind Paul's instruction is that you are to go ahead and eat and not sit there and run it through your heads. Is this okay or not okay? If they don't say something to you, you're just supposed to eat and not worry about it. Why? How would you know if there was a problem? You're following an almighty God, aren't you? Do you think God's up in heaven going, like, well, I gave them another test and they failed it again. Oh man, these people, I keep putting it in front of them and they just keep failing. Is that, is that the God that you serve? Is that the God who leads you? Is that the God who never leaves you or forsake you? Is he the God who's like, oh man, there was another trap door and they just walked right into it. I can't believe it. Or is God the one who's saying, listen, your walk of faith is to trust me in those dicey situations that I will lead you in it, that you will hear my voice and you will follow me, that it won't be uncertain and it won't be unclear. And if it is, it's because I'm not leading you that direction or I'm not, I'm not stopping you from going that direction. You know what I mean? 
Like in other words, here, I walk in, I sit down, they put something in front of me, they didn't say anything about it, I'm just supposed to eat. Why? Because I trust that God cares enough about that issue and that person's soul that if I'm not supposed to eat that, it will become very obvious to me. And I will follow that. There is a faith in Christianity that says, I am not afraid to walk into any situation because God is with me and God will lead me. And I am dependent and I am confident in that fact. So that as I do it, it doesn't mean every, every situation is like la-di-da. Situations are tough, but I don't have to recoil in fear or avoid. I can step into them knowing that God will lead me in it because God wants me to know His way. If God didn't want you to know His way, we wouldn't have this. If God didn't want you to know His way, you wouldn't know Him. He, he took the steps to reveal himself to you. He took the steps to write down these things in the Word of God that teach us about who he is and what's, what's inbounds and what's out of bounds and all that kind of stuff so that we would have some bearings, some way to go. Without God, we wouldn't know good from bad. And if you look at people who reject God, you can see they don't know good from bad, right? The, the way that their minds process things and the way they come to conclusions about what's okay and what's not okay is twisted. They don't know good from bad. They call evil good and good evil. Why? Because without God, we don't know. So God revealing Himself to us is evidence that in those moments where the Bible doesn't have a verse, thou shalt take this job, thou shalt buy this house, thou shalt marry this person. Like we don't have that kind of clear instruction here. I don't have to go, oh no, what will I do? I go, God will lead me. And so as my kids grow up, you know, my daughter's... Uh, uh, still looking for, is there, is there a person out there that God has for her? What I say to her is, God has that person, and it's His job to bring Him to you. It's not your job to go find Him. It's your job to follow God, and as you follow God down the pathways of your life, God will bring that person at the right time in the right way. And maybe some of that's because there's a process that needs to happen in you and a process that needs to happen in Him before He shows up on the scene, you know? Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's just that this is not the time and God's asking you to just trust Him and, and learn to walk by faith. Whatever it is, you don't have to stress about it. You can live at peace and at rest, even in a big thing like, who am I going to marry? Because God's got it. And God will show you His will. You're not going to be like, well, you know, that Thursday I got sick and I should have gone to class, but I didn't go to class and I probably missed the person that I was supposed to marry and now my life is ruined. You know what I mean? Like, that's not the God we serve. The God we serve is not wringing His hands up in heaven like, I sure hope you go to class on Thursday or my whole plan is ruined. <laughs> right? We act like that sometimes, like it's all on us. Listen, my problem is obeying God, not knowing what He wants me to do. Generally speaking, my problem is that I don't trust Him, not that I don't hear Him. My problem is that I refuse to follow Him, not that He doesn't lead. Right? So let's follow him in the things that he's made clear to us. Maybe he's leading you in an area you don't care about and you refuse to follow him. Maybe that's the reason he hasn't led you in the area you care about yet. Because what the step you need to take is to follow where he is leading so that you'll be ready for when he leads in the spot that your question is. Because it's to his glory, not to yours, right? It's not your kingdom, it's his kingdom. 